I'm Steve Glaveski, and this is Venture Backed. Welcome to the show, Sean. Thanks, Steve. Good to be here. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. And I just learned in our little chit-chat before recording that you were born in Sydney. Yeah, born in Sydney but left at a young age. Yeah, now you find yourself over in the OC in California? What's that? Yeah, I'm in uh, Orange County now in Newport Beach and uh, kind of, I guess, sort of as close to uh, Sydney climate as you can get. <laughs> yeah, well, you've still got the uh, the pristine beaches over there, so that's a uh, kind of Sydney esque in, in a way. Um, right. So, Sean, thanks for uh, agreeing to appear on the show. I'm sure uh, many of our listeners will be excited to uh, learn something from this one. And um, I guess first up, as the person who coined the term growth hacker way back in 2010, and for the benefit of our audience, some of who may not really be familiar with the term, how do you define growth hacking? Yeah, so for me, I coined the term because I had been a marketer for a lot of years Mm -hmm. and knew that growth went well beyond what marketing could do. So Mm -hmm. I was was just trying to look at how how do companies actually grow. And so growth hacking is about doing experimentation all the way along the customer journey and not just out in the marketing channels and doing that experimentation to basically – increase the value that you're delivering to customers, which is key to driving sustainable growth of, of customers and, uh, and ultimately revenue. Yeah. And it aligns quite closely with, uh, I guess, the lean startup philosophy where it is all about um, experiment-led uh, customer discovery. Right. Very similar. Um, and I think it's, uh, it's just really looking at it through the lens of uh, sustainable growth is the, is the main thing that you're focused on. Mm-hmm. But, um, but definitely, if you are a believer in lean startup, then then this will probably make a lot of sense to you. Yeah, definitely. And um, I guess for me, what gets me really excited about growth hacking is that it's not about having the biggest marketing budget per se and that it can help people um, and startups of modest means with the right attitude, the right skill set to basically take their ideas to the world um, as opposed to having to you know, fight for uh, TV slots and above-the-line marketing campaigns like we used to you know, 10, 15 years right. ago. Today, you can leverage a third party's audience as long as, as, long as you can find some form of uh, mutually beneficial value. Yeah, it's just definitely it's relentless optimization of kind of every part of that customer journey. So what mm. that does is gives you a lot of leverage when you do want to spend money. You can spend it much more cost effectively than if you're than if you're a marketer who's just trying to bring <laughs> them to the front door and relying on the rest of the team to drive those conversions. It's yeah. it's bringing that same approach all the way through and and uh, makes makes it much easier to spend money if you want to and and ultimately can even help you drive growth without spending money in a lot of companies. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I mean, you mentioned there it's more cost effective. And uh, I guess what came to mind was your traditional sort of marketing officer role at a large company where you've got, say, a six-month to 12-month marketing campaign all set up. You know what you're going to spend. You know what you're going to spend it on. And effectively, regardless of whether or not those channels are effective, um, you're spending that money regardless. Whereas with growth hacking, it says, okay, we're going to run this experiment. We might run it for a day, a week, a couple of weeks. We'll get some data, as much data as we need. And then based on that, we'll determine whether or not we're making money off this channel, whether or not we're getting some value, or whether or not we should just kill this and move to something else. Absolutely. Yeah. The, um, the shelf life of tactics has gotten so much shorter and that 
the whole approach of kind of annual campaigns and, and trying to plan that out in advance just just doesn't make sense anymore. There's there's new channels that are emerging literally every single week. And even within a channel, if you if you look at especially in online channels, you look at something like Facebook, what works one month on Facebook is not going to work the next month. And so mm. you have to constantly stay on top of these platforms. And but it's not just about the channels for, for growth hacking. It's about it's about you know really getting deep into that customer experience and figuring out ways where you build so much efficiency that you actually can compete mm. in those channels that are changing really quickly. So it's it's really kind of all of the interdependent variables that work together to to help you deliver value to customers and drive growth. Yeah, perfect. And uh, Sean, you were um, the first marketer at Dropbox, and and one of the growth hacks I often talk about um, in, in the workshops we run here is how Dropbox got something like seventy five thousand signups literally overnight. Um, were you involved in that? Or was this just before you joined the company? No, I joined the week that the company uh, had a public launch. The big push that really got them on the map was was pre me, which was which was super cool. They basically they basically were able to make a great video of the Dropbox experience mm. um, before the product was even available and uh, get get some pretty good distribution out yeah. of Dig. And once once people saw what they were trying to do, it drove a lot more interest in the product. But I mean, th- I think ultimately the success of Dropbox, anybody can get someone potentially interested in the product. But if the product doesn't deliver on the expectations around just like ease of use and all of the other things that uh, the simplicity of being able to keep your data synchronized between all your devices that Dropbox was able to achieve is probably so much more impressive than just the growth hack that got people to check it out in the first place. Mm. Yeah. And that particular growth hack, I mean, was you mentioned the product wasn't available yet, but was it even functioning or was it just kind of like a smoke and mirrors video that they put together? Um, well, there was, I think a couple of videos. The first one was kind of a smoke and mirrors video. Mm. Um, but, uh, and then they built a waiting list off of the second one. And I think just with it, as with anything, they, they definitely subscribed to the lean startup approach of a minimum viable product. So there was definitely a product there all the way along, but yeah. it, was, it was a product that wasn't ready to roll out to everybody at the same time. Yeah. And the important thing there was that they actually found uh, communities online that would resonate uh, that the product would resonate with, which was Dig and Reddit, and they didn't just blindly blast some, you know, random channel where they were just hoping that enough people would see it that the right people would see it. Right, right. They definitely were creative in in getting getting it to go viral on Dig, which um, it, it, def- it got that seed going so that by the time that I got there, it was we we had a a nice solid base of early adopters on the product, and then mm. it was really how do we how do we leverage those early adopters to to ultimately you know move it to much more of a mainstream uh, customer base? And in the six months, I, I did it as an interim VP marketing role. And mm-hmm. in the six months when I was there, we I was surveying all the way along, and the and, and the, I asked the question, which best describes you? I like to be among the first to try cool new technology, or I only try things that I think will be useful for me. Yeah, and. When I started, it was 80% of the user base was saying they like to be among the first to try cool new technology. But within six months, we'd flipped it to where it was 80% of the user base saying that they only try things that they think will be useful for them. Oh, wow. Um, how important was it to do that type of um, early stage customer persona, uh, those, those interviews? 
I it was huge for me. So mm. I, I basically um, I ran. I, I must have done hundreds of surveys. Yeah. Just just trying to figure out the user base, trying to figure out what they loved about the product, what their expectations were as they were coming in, and a lot of it was basically to to define, to really try to capture the essence of what was driving all of that customer passion mm -hmm. from that early base of users, and then make sure that we carefully articulated that for, for new users signing up, and then streamlined the delivery of that value, and uh, and, and kind of honed it based on what their intent was. So um, you know, if somebody was coming in on a file share, they had a very different expectation of what the product was going to do compared to if they came in via word of mouth on the homepage, and, which was generally emphasizing keeping your own data synchronized across multiple devices. So mm. it really, like kind of getting into their heads, figuring out what their expectations were, making sure that we didn't tell them everything the product could do right away because then you know, it would be overwhelming them with complexity. So trying to convert that initial intent, but knowing that the goal was to ultimately bring them to the experience that they would understand the product holistically. Yeah, and you touched on an interesting point there around depending on where they came from, whether it was through FileShare or whether it was through the homepage, um, the message they would see would effectively be different and more in line with what that person was um, valuing. Right, yes, intent is such a valuable kind of asset to be working with mm. as a marketer that if you if you don't try to completely understand and harness that intent, you're probably going to lose it. And then, and then you have to try to do demand gen and that's, that's a lot harder. So if, if there's some existing demand that is, uh, you know, is interested in the product, it's all about breaking down the barriers to satisfy that demand. Yeah. Yeah. And it reminds me of, um, an AB test that, um, a lot of startups I know are you know, tinkering with, which is you run a particular, um, well, you, you will A-B test, say, several different uh, variations of a landing page, but based on where you're running your ads and based on what the customer segment is on that particular ad you're, you're running, um, they'll all see different uh, landing pages. Um, so one, yeah. yeah, and one could be, uh, you know, male, 18 to 25, the other could be female, 35 to 45, and, you know, branding, everything can be different just so it resonates with that particular customer segment. Yeah, I think the key, though, that I, I see a lot of people doing that, but the mistake that I see is that they they then have very fragmented messaging long term, mm -hmm. and um, and the the product means so much for for different people. Where it's really important to understand that core most valuable experience, and everything else is just sort of a pathway to get them to that most valuable experience, and then and then trying to reinforce kind of a primary promise about that experience. To, uh, to the majority of people unless they have a very different intent that you're trying to kind of yeah in to the into the product but it's a lot of basically a lot of qualitative research and then a lot of a b testing to figure out figure out how to how to maximize results based on that qualitative research yeah exactly and, and it is something that I think you touched it well touched on it there which is you know you do that in the early stages when you're trying to do all your quali qualitative and quantitative research and figure out um, who your customers are, why the product resonates with them. But once you've got them on board, it really is, you know, what's your main product? Because if you're, you can't be concurrently for the life of the product writing 20 or 30 different marketing messages uh, at the same time, it would be very uh, onerous on the marketing yeah. team. And, yeah, but it's, a, it's a balancing act though, because it's definitely, you know, I, I think you can support multiple intents, but mm -hmm. The, the you have to quickly 
quickly kind of convert that intent into a into a more consistent promise of what the product does or yeah, you, yeah you'll have a pretty fragmented brand excellent excellent um so we touched on um your traditional marketing teams earlier and your six to 12 months sort of marketing campaigns um would you say that the you know the vp of marketing as andrew chen calls it is that something that you see replacing your traditional CMO in the future or perhaps complementary to your traditional marketing roles at large companies? Just a quick word from our sponsor and we'll be right back. One thing separates OK Venture Returns from great venture returns. Deal flow. Do you wish your firm had more of it? With just 2% of venture firms capturing 95% of returns, content is becoming essential to cultivating visibility, reputation, brand, and deal flow. Here at Sonic Boom, we specialize in crafting compelling content for venture capital firms. Find out more and lock in your free one-hour strategy call at sonicboom.vc. And now, back to the show. So what I see happening is a transition where the old siloed organization, Mm -hmm. where you have you know, marketing that's, that's primarily kind of somewhat bringing new customers to the front door. And then you've got a product team that's, that's going through the onboarding and, and the ongoing product experience, uh, that, that approach is just not very effective. Mm. And what you're seeing is companies like Facebook that from the time they introduced a cross-functional growth team, uh, almost 10 years ago now, it was nine years ago, they did it. They have added another 40, uh, no, another 400 billion wow. in valuation to the business. And it's just, you know, once you have a common success metric, so in growth hacking, we, we refer to something called the North Star metric. Mm-hmm. And that North Star metric is really this expansion of value across your user base. That, that becomes something that uh, is, is really a rallying metric for every department within the business for everyone to be able to evaluate how am I impacting this North Star metric, this expansion yeah. of value. And um, increasing what you find is when that happens, the a, a cross-functional growth team that's able to experiment across each of the areas of the customer journey is, is what works best for moving that North Star metric in the right direction. Mm. Um, so you might still have, I think... Um, I was going to say Uber is a good example, but they're kind of a messed up company these days. But I think they uh, they still like you know you have at companies like Uber and Facebook, the marketing function still exists, but it's 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 more tangential to to this core growth team. Mm-hmm. Um, it actually sits within the growth team at, at Uber. I th- I'm not sure where it sits at Facebook, but um, I think that the the real value in in customer acquisition and retention and conversion mm-hmm. is happening in this cross-functional growth team. And, and maybe brand awareness and, and some of the pieces uh, a marketing function is still important for, but especially in an early stage company, an early stage company just can't even think about brand awareness. They, mm-hmm. It has to be, it has to be very ROI focused, get yeah. people to an experience, monetize and retain those people. And so that, I think that's really the angle that probably Andrew was talking about when he said that it's the new uh, VP of marketing is the growth hacker. Yeah. But as as companies are more mature, there there are uh, there are needs for uh, some some more traditional marketing there. Yeah. Well, yeah. As any um, startup gets 
bigger and bigger. They need to put more processes in place and just execute. But that can often be the death of innovation in a lot of startups as they get bigger. But that's another story and we won't digress. Um, But on the North Star metric, Sean, um, I guess that kind of aligns with, you know, what we hear from guys like Ben Yoskovich, uh, Yoskovich rather, who wrote the the one metric that matters, um, yeah. or Gary it's Keller. It's synonymous with the idea of the one metric that matters, but it's it's basically that I think the problem with the, the one metric that matters is mm-hmm. that it, I used to refer to it as that, but then everybody quickly goes into, but this metric's important, and this metric's important, you know, that you, you it, it, <laughs> it immediately puts people on their heels yeah. versus a North Star metric that has a bunch of submetrics that are are levers for moving that north star metric? Uh, I think is uh, a, a kind of a clearer way to describe it. Yeah, well, that's that's funny because the next thing I wanted to talk about was focusing on one metric at the risk of everything else. Um, which yeah, I had a conversation with Ash Moria uh, recently, and he was saying, "Oh, well, if you just focus on the one metric that uh, quote unquote matters, then you might be doing so at the detriment to another part of the business. Um, for example, mm-hmm. if you're Airbnb and you're focusing on nights booked, but the experience is poor, then that's not going to be sustainable in the long term because people aren't going to come back. But what you've said there is you've got your North Star metric, but you've still got all these other sub-metrics that you're tracking as well. It's not just that single metric. Right. So Knight's book is a classic one from, from Airbnb. Like if that's going to be comprised of new customers and repeat customers. And mm-hmm. so you, you need to focus on both of those. If you're only focused on the repeat, you're not going to have that much room for growth. But if you're only focused on the new, then you're probably going to sacrifice quality and they're not going to yeah. be coming back. So that would be an example of a couple of sub metrics that, that, feed into that that main north star metric yeah excellent excellent and on um you know large companies uh i suppose embracing growth hacking i mean i'm seeing more companies uh the likes of deloitte and uh, ibm talk about growth hacking and i mean to me it seems as if growth hacking was born out of necessity um came out of startups who didn't have all that much cash you know desperation um, and had to find novel ways to grow short of spending money on, on big marketing campaigns. I mean, what's your take on large organizations really getting growth hacking and applying it uh, successfully? I think so it, So much of growth hacking is about breaking down some of those traditional silos that that's probably the hardest type of change for a large company to make. Those are, those are like entrenched 100-year-old or mm. longer – silos and and to start to tell people that they have a common metric and they need to work together to understand how to move that metric it's um i i just think that that it's hard but it's, yeah. it's something that when you look at an amazon versus a walmart and see that you know walmart was the most or one of the most valuable companies in the world not very long ago amazon mm. just hit their market cap you know kind of tied them maybe a year ago and doubled them this year <laughs> Um, you just you just see so much growth, and then you know same thing with Airbnb versus some of these you know historic hotel chains that it's now worth more than them. Like it's it's something that um, that they have to take notice. Even even Tesla's is a great example of a company that is um, you know some of the referral program, some of you know the the fact that um, the fact that they have four hundred thousand dollars four hundred thousand people that have pre ordered put a thousand dollars down on a pre-ordering yeah. a car that's still probably a year from being delivered and I'm, I'm one of them that mm-hmm. ordered it a year and a half ago you know it's um it I, like i think 
I think that there's a lot to be learned from from these companies. And so even the even the the older companies that might have a harder time adopting growth hacking, they're they're realizing the necessity of it because they compete against these companies. And if if the agility that growth hacking brings to these companies helps them you know, outcompete the entrenched player, then then these entrenched companies um, need to need to respond. And I think I think they're trying to. Like L'Oreal, for example, I did. Uh, I kicked off a growth hacking week with uh, with pretty much all of their country managers or their main country managers from around the world came to California a few months ago. And for a week, all of them studied growth hacking in, in Southern California and in uh, Silicon Valley. Mm. Um, so I think they're they're trying to figure it out. They're trying to see where it applies. And, um, you know, especially with a company like L'Oreal where you've got, uh, you know, channels and and you don't mm. have that direct customer relationship as much um might be a little tougher but then you see a unilever acquiring dollar shave club at for, for the for the channel that it brings to them to be able to do growth hacking on a, a more of a direct customer acquisition and retention approach so, yeah yeah i think there's potential if they if these companies get creative enough to 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 be able to apply it in just about any type of business mm, yeah definitely and um i mean you mentioned tesla and amazon that obviously they're your modern big companies and l'oreal is probably one of the more traditional ones and i guess you know what would be the challenge is not so much uh, you know, learning growth hacking is definitely one thing, but then how do you effectively apply that in what is a very, like you said, siloed organization with particular structures that don't really lend themselves to experimentation? Um, I think we saw GE do something. Well, we GE did do something a few years ago with Eric Reese, where he taught you know thousands of middle managers the lean startup philosophy. But once they got back to their business units, you know, taking risks, experimenting, uh, moving quickly, it just wasn't possible until they um, redesigned some of the processes and systems at, at those mm-hmm. business units that would help them actually move faster and try lots of different things. Yeah, no, it's definitely, I, I don't think anybody should take it too lightly, the challenge, especially in an, uh, an older organization to, to do it. But um, one of the companies that I've actually been most impressed, that's, that's mm-hmm. a you know, long established company is Adobe. And what they've done is they basically have a startup within within Adobe where they've organized it like any other Silicon Valley startup, and uh, it's their Adobe Spark unit. And they are, I would say, among the most sophisticated growth teams with a with a growth process that I've seen of of any company, and they just happen to be in a in in a much larger established software company. Yeah, is the Spark team responsible for the Kickbox program? Are you familiar with that? Uh, not familiar with that. Okay. I know it's a product called Spark. Uh, okay, cool. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I was really impressed with how they've how they've been approaching it. We we actually had the guy who runs their growth team speak at our Growth Hackers Conference in LA a couple of weeks ago, and mm. uh, just everything he laid out was was super impressive. Yeah, well, they've also um, I mentioned the program they've got called Kickbox, where basically any employee at Adobe who has an idea um, basically just raises their hand. They get a little red box called the Kickbox, and it will have some instructions in there around how you um, you know map out a lean canvas map out your key assumptions, what tests you can do, um, or what prototypes you can build to run some tests and get some data. And it also comes with a little credit card loaded with $1,000 on it. So you can actually go 
out and spend money on whatever you need to to make these prototypes a reality, get some data, wow. and then take that data back to a decision maker and say, hey, this was my idea. This is what I did. Here's the data. What do you think? Um, which well, What's the name of that? Kickbox. Kickbox. Yeah, really, really cool. And I think once they validate um, their assumptions with the Kickbox, then they get another blue box, which I'm not sure what's in that one. They've kept that one pretty pretty hush over at Adobe. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, the black box. Yeah, yeah. Um, so just to, I'll, I'll digress for a second. On your Tesla, Sean, are you a Model X, Model S, or a, or a Model 3 guy? No, the model, the, yeah, I pre-ordered the Model 3. Uh, yeah. Mostly, you know, it's, I, I drive like an old Jeep as my normal car. And uh-huh. I'm not really a modern kind of uh, car driver, but I love the autonomous stuff that uh, is so close with Tesla that that's the autonomous driving stuff is what I'm really excited yeah. about. Yeah, I actually put my name down as well a few months ago, but being in Australia, we don't get ours till something like early 2019, so I've got a <laughs> <laughs> bit of time. I was... I was like three hundred thousandth on the list or something, but then I then I like I wasn't gonna do. I was like, oh, geez, it'll be forever before I get one. And then I saw West Coast, United States first. I'm like, oh, I'll jump pretty far ahead on the list for that. Yeah, nice one. <laughs> awesome, man. Um, so one of my um, former colleagues, he wrote an article about um, his marketing degree. And his marketing degree, you know, he learned all sorts of above the line nineteen um, eighties stuff, and he basically complained that. Well, it wasn't a complaint, but he basically observed that once he got into the um, real world and started working for an agency, nothing that he learned was applicable. He had to learn everything from scratch. And you know what? This is true of a lot of professions, but it was as if he didn't need to go to that course for a single day. And I mean, what do you make of today's university degrees versus, say, your more modular online education when it comes to marketing, when it comes to growth hacking and so on? Yeah, I mean, I, I look at it as an advantage that I didn't study marketing in mm-hmm. college. I, I studied uh, more microeconomics, which I think applies to a lot of what I do day to day. But interestingly, once I started, uh, once I got my first marketing role and, and actually, I think I'd already been promoted to a VP of marketing. It was a, a public company at that point. Um, Without really ever studying marketing, then I thought, "Geez, I better get some, better get some real marketing kind of training." So I went and took a strategic marketing management course at NYU, and uh, it it caused me to way overthink things and yeah. actually kind of threw my game off for for a few months <laughs> until I could kind of like stop, get out of the book, and just keep keep using logic where it's you know. You, you acquire a customer, you keep that customer, you maximize revenue per customer. The, the more revenue you generate, the more you can spend on acquiring more customers. You know, it, it was, uh, it, interestingly, for that company, we went on to have the lowest customer acquisition cost of any publicly traded company. That company became the number eight website in the world in terms of total usage time. And uh, it was, you know, Everything that I did was the opposite of what I was learning from a book. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. It's 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 funny you mentioned that, and um, you you said you know you're better off not having that marketing base, and that makes you um that's your advantage. And this is a unrelated but related in some way. I know a lot of um, UFC coaches basically say that some of their best fighters are guys that didn't come into uh, mixed martial arts with a particular discipline. Um, for example, they weren't BJJ guys or Muay Thai guys or boxing guys. They started training MMA from a young age so they could throw it all together rather than lean towards a particular uh, discipline when they're in the octagon. Yeah. yeah. I think my, my advantage when I started doing 
uh, this was, it was 1996 when I started doing it. And so there was no book on how to market on the internet in 1996 mm. and no class on it really. So for me having, having kind of a blank slate, I'd also invested really every dollar I had into the business. So I was really focused on trying to make it successful. And, um, so I, I could, I could really think like, how should, how should a company grow in this new emerging medium? And, uh, and I wasn't trying to impress my boss with what I was doing. I was trying to make sure the business stayed in business and, uh, because I had done that investment. So I think, I think that was sort of the right mindset going into it and could really invent as we went along. And that was, Sometimes it's easier to invent when you don't have stuff to forget. Yeah, that's a great one. And uh, you, know, you, you mentioned there, uh, because you had that investment, you were committed to finding ways to grow, which I think is so so powerful. And again, it comes back to the whole startup versus corporate growth hacking sort of mindset where you basically right. had to find ways to grow because every single dollar you had was invested into it. Yeah, desperation is a pretty powerful motivator of being creative. Yeah, definitely is. Definitely is. And um, on being creative, Sean, you recently um, published uh, Hacking Growth, your book on growth hacking. How today's fastest growing companies drive breakout success. Um, it came out what about a month ago now. Um, what can our readers expect to um, learn by picking up a copy of the book? Yeah, so what we wanted to do was really kind of distill all I, myself and my co-author just wanted to distill everything down into a pretty actionable process of how to how to build a growth team, how to make sure that you've uh, got a product that actually can su support sustainable growth, and how to how to go through and validate that, mm -hmm. and then just the the process that a growth team needs to follow to effectively to effectively grow that North star metric that I talked about earlier and, and, you know, building a, building a growth model of the interdependent levers that move that North star metric forward. And mm -hmm. then, so that's kind of a lot of the beginning is just laying all of those pieces out, uh, with, with some good stories about just, you know, some, some companies where I didn't do this at first and then kind of learned this on the fly and some other companies where we talked to other, uh, heads of growth and founders, uh, and then, in the second part of the book, we get really tactical around just hacking acquisition and hacking activation, just mm -hmm. kind of ev everything in these, these key levers from retention and monetization and just keeping that virtuous cycle where you can, you know, an improvement in one area starts to starts to make another area work better and loosens it up. And um, it's uh, I, I so far the, the feedback's been awesome. I think we've got a 4.9 rating on Amazon and uh, awesome. And yeah, there's there's been a lot of enthusiasm enthusiasm around the book. So I'm I'm glad that there's finally a kind of guidebook for doing these things. Yeah, definitely. And, and I guess that um, complements uh, growthhackers.com. Um, you know, the online shall we call that treasure trove of growth hacks um, that you're a founder of. Um, you founded this, when was it, 2012, or am I mistaken? Yeah, so we, we launched the site in 2013, yep. but um, did it kind of as a side project from the business I was running at the time, and mm -hmm. we saw enough potential on growthhackers.com where we sold the other business um, about a year ago and went all in where we uh, just have this great platform between our now the book really kind of feeds into that platform, but mm. book conference, the the community, and uh, we've we've basically built training programs on top of that, and uh, and our our big bet is on software for helping these cross functional teams work yeah. together to manage growth, and that's the 
that's where most of our time and focus is on building the software and, and uh, really starting to, to grow the user base on the software. Awesome. Yeah, no, look, I'm a massive fan of growthhacks.com and all of our audience should check it out if they're looking for a treasure trove of uh, growth hacks. And uh, I guess the one thing that I struggle with on growthhackers.com, Sean, is that there's just way too many growth hacks to choose from. So, you know, I search for B2B growth hack and I literally get hundreds of pages of hacks and it's like where do i start so on that do you have any advice yeah so i mean there's a couple of different ways to use it like you said you can search and then uh everything the whole site is community uh community run and, Mm. and curated so it's really this whole community of hundreds of thousands of monthly users going out and scouring the web for any useful content about mm. how to grow businesses, they're all going in and submitting it, voting it up, commenting on the good stuff. And so, I mean, I think if you want like new emerging stuff, just going to the homepage and seeing what's trending at any given point, like the one or two top spots are usually pretty good. Yeah. And then we have a weekly newsletter where uh, we cover kind of the, the top 10 trending articles of the week. But then the other way to use it, as you said, is you know just through search, being able to search basically any topic, and you can find a lot of depth in, in content around those. But again, it's just look for the ones that have the most votes and conversations on them, and there's probably pretty good pretty good content on mm. that. Excellent, excellent advice, and we'll share that in the show notes for our listeners. Awesome, Sean, you've left our audience with a, a ton of uh, value bombs. But before we wrap up today, we've got to throw you into our three-question lightning round. Are you ready to rock and roll? I hope so. <laughs> All right, let's do this. So, question number one, Sean: If you could work for any organization at any stage of the company lifecycle, so we could go back to the 18th century if we wanted to, who would it be, and why? So it would be my organization where I am right now. That's why I'm here, but um, but that's too too uh, easy of an answer. So I, it would actually be it would actually be Facebook. I think uh-huh. Facebook has. It would be Facebook, whether it's today or five years ago. They have the um, they're they're so sophisticated in how they approach growth that um, I would love to just go there and learn. Mm. Oh, and that's what it's all about: learning. Um, Great answer. Question number two, Sean, is if you could ask anyone a question, dead or alive, who would it be and what would you ask? Hmm. I would probably I would probably ask Alex Schultz, the guy who runs growth at <laughs> at uh, at Facebook. Uh, just seeing you know, a theme here. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean anything that you can read that those guys have published yeah. or watched from any of those guys is probably gonna be loaded with gold. Um, but I, I would just ask him of, of everything that they've done. What is what is the what is the most important like just tip that he would have around growth, whether that's you know process. But it definitely wouldn't be a tactic. It would be it would be something to do with. And, and my guess is that he would probably emphasize North Star metric. Mm, excellent, excellent. And is there speaking of one tip? Is there one big tip you would give our audience on growth hacking? Yeah, it would be North Star metric. Just yeah. like figure out. Figure out a metric that quantifies the value you're delivering to your customers and uh, key everything that you're doing off of expanding that value. That's, yeah. that's what drives that's what drives retained growth. That's what drives referrals. Every Everything is is really off of delivering value to customers. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and lucky last, Sean, I always try to get inside the heads of high performers to figure out how they stay on top of their game. So to that point, do you have any um, daily rituals or routines you partake in? Yeah, I mean, 
I the one thing that I do every day is is read our uh, our uh, net promoter score feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know there's so much that I could learn about different channels and uh, and other things that really being able to read from my customers what they why they would recommend our service the main benefit that they're getting or, or, or what we should be doing to improve it so I think just keeps me plugged into what's really important and that's that's really the relationship between how my product satisfies customers and mm-hmm. and uh, getting that feedback keeps me plugged into what's probably the most important perfect and that that brings us full circle back to building that sustainable growth absolutely excellent <laughs> awesome well our audience can connect with you on twitter at sean ellis that's e-l-l-i-s they can head over to growthhackers.com and they can pick up a copy of hacking growth over on amazon is there anywhere else people should go to find out more about you and connect sean uh yeah welcome to send a linkedin invite to me i like to connect with other people that are interested in this stuff but um but yeah it, growthhackers.com and and Twitter are probably the the two best places to connect with me. Awesome. Fantastic. So uh, thanks for your time, Sean. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. That's a wrap. If you like what you heard, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you listen to it and share it with a colleague or friend. Venture Backed was brought to you by Sonic Boom Media, a content agency helping VC firms generate better deal flow. Head over to sonicboom.vc to learn more and sign up to our fortnightly newsletter for more podcast episodes and venture insights.